Praise the Lord. Now is the time dedicated for the preaching of God's word. During this time, if I have internet problems while I'm preaching, please wait as we try our backup plans. If you are having internet problems and can't get back into the Zoom gathering, we do have a pre-recorded audio file of today's sermon available for you. The Zoom host today is Launi, so, so she can send you the link to the audio file so you can still listen to the sermon. Hopefully you can also rejoin us as soon as possible, especially at the end of our service as we're, we will also observe the Lord's Supper together as a congregation. Lastly, the sermon handout and manuscript are uploaded on our website as resources for you as well. Let's pray and ask for more grace from the Lord through the ministry of his word. Heavenly Father, you are the rebuilder of your people, the rebuilder of your church. Rebuild us in this season. Through the ministry of your word and spirit right now, rebuild us. May we be locked into what you have to say to us, that it would lead us to obeying and consecrating ourselves to whatever you want us to be and do in this season and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So today's sermon is titled Finishing the Temple, and it's from Ezra chapters 5 and 6. We are in this sermon series through Ezra and Nehemiah called Rebuild. And what I want to clarify with everyone here today is that in finishing the temple, the Lord wasn't just rebuilding a physical structure. He was rebuilding his people. He was rebuilding their identity corporately as a covenant community, who the Lord wanted them to be and what the Lord wanted them to do. As I mentioned last week, one New Testament parallel regarding the temple is that the church is now the temple of God as believers are joined together with Christ as the cornerstone. The church is not a building. Amen? The church is you and me gathered here together. So can you just remind each other by saying this, if you're with someone, or by typing it out into this chat or as a text to someone else, we are the church. Look them in the eye and say, we are the church. Now, this is entirely relevant for us in this particular moment of time because there is some rebuilding that we need to do as a church as well in light of this pandemic that has significantly changed our world. Not only that, we've all gone through our own personal changes and trials during this year and a half. We've experienced really great events and significant milestones during this time. We've experienced really hard lows too. Honestly, I don't know of a stretch of time when our churches had to deal with so many loved ones passing away. It's been just crazy. And the even harder part of all this is that we've gone through most of this, for the most part, alone, because the pandemic has forced us to be fragmented and apart. We're wondering what the coming months and years have in store for us. We know we need to get used to COVID-19 in our world and somehow move forward in our lives. So let's gather together around this part of scriptures that will give us some foundational things that we need to think about as his people, as his disciples, as his church. The one thing from Ezra chapters five and six for us today is this, trust that the Lord rebuilds us as his people, the church. So God's word here shows three specific ways that he rebuilds his people. First, he rebuilds us as people receiving God's word. 
Second, he rebuilds us as people who obey God. And third, he rebuilds us as people joyfully consecrated. So these three specific ways that he rebuilds us are why we can trust that the Lord rebuilds us as his people, the church. Since this passage is a sizable amount of content, we'll go through it step by step. Step. I'll also highlight a specific timeless truth for us from each part of these three parts of Ezra chapters five and six. So first, the Lord rebuilds us as people receiving God's word. I'll highlight this first timeless truth as we work through this part. The ministry of God's word creates transformation of heart in God's people, the church. In these verses, we see that the people of God, prompted by the ministry of these two prophets of the Lord, restarted the temple rebuilding project. Let's read Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 first. This is God's word. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Amen. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets of the Lord. Back in those times, prophets were God's messengers who delivered God's words to his people, sometimes just spoken, sometimes written down for the record. Moses was the first prophet who received and wrote down the law from Yahweh. Haggai and Zechariah were also prophets who wrote books that are included in the Bible and who had significant ministries during this time. When you look at these two books, you get neat insights on what was going on with the people of God during this time. First, when you look at the book of Zechariah, the messages from Yahweh address the people's discouragement in rebuilding the temple, but also gets directly at the heart of the problem. Look at what Yahweh told Zechariah to say in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So Yahweh declared that he cared deeply for his people and that he would establish a new king from the branch, that is the line of David, who would cleanse his people from their sin and rebuild the true temple. Zechariah called the people of Israel to repentance and to serve Yahweh faithfully, especially the leaders. Second, when you look at the book of Haggai, the messages from Yahweh call the people to resume the rebuilding of the temple. Yahweh's message to the Jews at this time also cut deeply into their hearts. Haggai 1, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. They had prioritized rebuilding their own homes, but, uh, but had actually put off the difficult task of rebuilding the temple. Yahweh's messages also promised God's blessing as they trusted and obeyed him. It also inspired the leaders of the people, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, to get the rebuilding project moving again after it had been stopped before. Remember, this is what happened 
in the end of chapter four. So the ministry of God's word led by these two prophets of the Lord were crucial in what happened here. God's word made it clear to this new generation that their sins collectively as a people led to the, led to the destruction of their city and temple and the captivity in Babylonia that they experienced for the last 70 years. It was God's word that also led them to repentance and shared that Yahweh would return to them if they returned to him. God's word challenged this new generation specifically when they got comfortable in their new homes and put off the hard task of rebuilding the temple after it was stopped. When the people needed rebuke, vision, encouragement, care, and support, specifically as it said in verse 2, God led them through his word. What is apparent here is that the ministry of God's word created this transformation of heart in God's people here in this scripture. Now let's come back to this first timeless truth. The ministry of God's word creates transformation of heart in God's people, the church. I say this all the time, that it is a blessing in disguise that I'm not very good at public speaking. I'm not eloquent or long-winded enough to even deceive myself into thinking that I have something important or valuable to say from myself. I know I'm not, so I depend on God's word to speak, convict, and lead the church. I don't think I could come up with 40 minutes of material on my own, but I gladly preach every week from the scriptures, and we dedicate this much time um, to it in our corporate gatherings. I do this because I know God's word transforms. It's the only thing that transforms hearts and reveals who God is and what his will is for all of us. God's word is what gives us rebuke, vision, encouragement, care, and support at just the right times. But do you know that you have a ministry of God's word too? We all have word ministry in our church. First, your word ministry is to feed yourself through your own Bible intake. This is why we incessantly encourage people to start Bible reading plans and to learn inductive Bible study methods. There's nothing more exciting than seeing people get excited about God's word as they discover life-giving truth for themselves and as they hear God speaking to them personally and powerfully on their own. Also, your word ministry is with others around you. This is a way to disciple the people closest to you. Talk about the Bible and study it together with your friends, children, spouse, and other family members. Talk about the Bible and study it together with brothers and sisters from the church in life group. This is what the purpose, this is what the purpose of life group is. Also, talk about the Bible and study it together with your friends who are not yet believers in Christ so that they can get personally introduced to God whom we know and love. And I'll say it again, God's word is the only thing that can transform a heart. But as you consider your word ministry in yourself and others and in our church, remember this important why. We plant God's word in our hearts and in others' hearts because it is what creates transformation in people. 
Just remember that God's word, God's words create. Just like in the beginning, when he spoke the the when he spoke, his words created the universe. His words create. They create conviction of sin, heart change to repent, and faith to trust and follow Jesus. No matter if you're eloquent or good with your words or not, the only change agent of our hearts is God's word. Oh, church, let's be people receiving God's word with an insatiable hunger and curiosity and seriousness. Amen? So first, we have seen that the Lord rebuilds us as people receiving God's word. Second, the Lord rebuilds us as people who obey God. I'll highlight the second timeless truth as we work through this part. Obedience requires faith that the Lord will accomplish his will no matter the outcome. In these verses, we see that the people of Judah face the challenge of an inquiry to the king regarding the decree to rebuild the temple, but the Lord upheld their cause. So let me do a large bit of summarizing through this part. After the people of Judah had that fire back under them to rebuild the temple, they experienced pushback from a specific group of people collectively identified as Tatanai, the governor of the province of the uh, province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and his associates. Now, their scope of power seemed to include a chunk of the Persian Empire that included Jerusalem. And these men questioned the legitimacy of rebuilding this temple. They went as far as to write a letter to King Darius, the ruler of the Persian Empire at that time. They reported that the Jews were rebuilding their temple, possibly without authorization from the king. The Jews in Jerusalem had explained to them that the temple was built by Solomon, but their ancestors sinned against Yahweh, and thus he sent the Babylonians to destroy the city and the temples. So you see, they did understand why all this happened, and they repented for it. The Jews claimed that King Cyrus had decreed for them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The letter requested that King Darius actually check the royal archives to verify if all of this was true or not. <clears throat> now we get to chapter 6, which records that King Darius did conduct a search in the archives and found the records. The records there confirmed that the Jews were permitted to rebuild the temple and also that Cyrus had pledged funds, uh, had pledged to fund the whole project and to return the original items back to the temple. After discovering this, King Darius ordered Tatanai and his buddies to literally keep away from the Jews who were rebuilding the temple. He went even further and decreed that the Jews were to be given more funds from the royal revenue and to be given supplies like livestock to sacrifice and food for the temple workers. King Darius also decreed that this uh, also decreed, and this is really, really important, that the Jews were not just permitted to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, they were encouraged to do so. Here's what verse 10 says exactly that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. 
So understand that the common practice of the Babylonians and the Persians was to integrate other gods and religions into their own. This was a polytheistic view of the world. If the God of the Jews or the God of heaven, as Darius put it, could help them and could help his own prosperity, then the more the merrier. However, another way to see this is that this was God's big plan all along. Yahweh was not just the God of the Jews, but the God of the whole world. When he made his covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis 12, 2, 3, Yahweh promised that he would bless Abraham's descendants. That's the whole nation of Israel, so that they could bless the other people groups around them. Some of the exiles were already a blessing to King Darius, like Daniel. Remember, this is Daniel from Daniel in the lion's den. Now he was asking the Jews, now Darius was asking the Jews to intercede on behalf of him and his family. After all this now, let's read what happened next in Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. This is God's word. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the, of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Amen. Now, the most important observation to make here is this. They finished the temple. They finally, actually finished this temple. They had started it way back around 538 BC, getting the altar and foundations quickly laid. But they hit some bumps and snags in the road. They faced opposition. Then construction stopped. Then they got discouraged and distracted with their own pursuits. Finally, in the sixth year of, the, of, of King Darius's reign, so around 515 BC, they finished it. So it took around 22 to 23 years to finish building the temple with all kinds of obstacles and op opposition that they faced in between. It was not an easy task. It took an extraordinarily long time. It had a lot of starts and stops in between, and it was in no way close to the glory and splendor of the original temple, but they finished it, and that's significant. So now let's come back to the second timeless truth. Obedience requires faith that the Lord will accomplish his will no matter the outcome. Now, I don't want you to think or get the impression that if we obey, there will always be overwhelmingly positive results. This was the case for the Jews this particular time, but it's not always like this. We will not always experience favor from powerful people, financial prosperity, or an overall win when we obey the Lord. But I can say for sure, 100% sure, that when we obey the Lord, we will be doing his will. Just as the Jews were accomplishing God's will by finishing the temple and interceding on behalf of King Darius. Let me say this again. When we obey the Lord, we will be doing his will. We need not think any farther than the Lord Jesus Christ himself as an example. He said this in his prayer on the Mount of Olives. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, 
not mine. So that night, as Jesus wrestled with the suffering that he was about to experience, he asked God, he wanted God to take away this cup of suffering. But as he wrestled and prayed, he was willing to, to accept God's will to be done. That night, he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested and put on trial. Early that following morning, he was beaten up and sentenced to death on a Roman cross. In obedience, he suffered and died. In suffering and dying, he fulfilled God's will to save the world. Through his suffering and death, our sins were paid for and our lives were redeemed. Church, what, what must define us as God's people is not just people receiving his word, but also people who obey God as we receive his word. If we truly understand that Jesus Christ is truly Lord of all, then as his people, our lives will be marked by proper, appropriate submission to him. That means this willingness to obey him at his word, period. Jesus himself said it even more bluntly in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many great mighty things in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we must say, Lord Jesus, you said that we must forgive those who wrong us. So even though everything in me doesn't want to, I will choose to forgive. So we must say, Lord Jesus, you said that we can I cannot love both you and money. So even though money is so alluring, I will choose to forsake it. We must say, Lord Jesus, you said that we cannot engage in sexual immorality. So even though I'm neck deep in this, I will choose from this point on to live in purity. We must say, Lord Jesus, you said to love your neighbor as yourself. So even though I have a lot going on, I will choose to look for opportunities to do this. Can you trust and believe that all these little decisions like this are accomplishing God's will on earth? Because they are. So we have seen that the Lord rebuilt us as people receiving God's word and as people who obey God. And third, the Lord rebuilds us as people joyfully consecrated. I'll highlight this third timeless truth as we work through this part. We can be joyfully consecrated to the Lord as we remember what he has done and will do. In these verses, we see that the people of Judah rededicated themselves to the Lord after the temple was finished, and they celebrated the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in Ezra chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, we see that, that the Jews, all the people, along with the priests and Levites, dedicated the, the rebuilt temple with a bunch of offerings to the Lord. You know, a lot of a scholars note that this was the, this actually was the 70 year mark of their time taken into captivity um, until the completion of the temple. This officially ended their exile. So now let's read the rest of this passage. Ezra chapter six, verses 19 through 22. 
This is God's word. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Amen. You see, it was extremely significant that the Jews celebrated the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread at this point. This was the first major event of the new Jewish calendar year. Another one of these, another one of the three major holidays when the Jews were to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And you see, the Passover was to remember when Yahweh sent that final plague in Egypt, the angel of death that would come and kill every firstborn son in Egypt. The people of Israel were instructed to kill a lamb and mark the tops of their doorposts with its blood so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. This event catalyzed Israel's release from slavery in Egypt. They had to eat in such a hurry that they could not wait for the bread to rise. And this was, commem this was commemorated by the Jews in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is, bread without yeast. So sometime after they had dedicated what's called the Second Temple, all the Jews returned to Jerusalem for this joyful remembrance of what God had done in delivering them from slavery in Egypt and setting them free. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were full of symbols and liturgy that looked back and reinforced this narrative that Yahweh had this new generation on a journey as well. And that, they, and that as they trusted in him and obeyed him along the way, he would certainly accomplish his will for them. They were also taught from God's words to his prophets that Yahweh would send a great and final king who would deliver his people and establish a kingdom that would be forever. They knew that they were not there yet. They still faced a lot of challenges ahead of them, but they had a joyful hope in that promise that burned brightly and clearly in this significant milestone of finishing the second temple, temple and celebrating the Passover. Therefore, in light of this joyful remembrance and joyful hope, there was a joyful consecration to the Lord in these verses. According to verse 21, even many of the people who had lived in Judah all those years, maybe some were not even Jews, they even separated themselves from the uncleanness of the idolatrous people groups living in the land. They dedicated themselves to worship the Lord alone. In other words, they consecrated themselves or set themselves apart to obey and serve no other gods but Yahweh only. Now let's come back to this third timeless truth. We can be joyfully consecrated to the Lord as we remember what he has done and will do. Here's the problem that we have to confront as we want to be people receiving God's word and especially people who obey God. We cannot do it. The Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin 
and are condemned to God's eternal wrath on our own. But we also have a joyful remembrance of what God has done on our behalf. Let me read Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The gospel that God loves us and sent, the gospel is that God loved us, loves us, and sent Jesus to die for us. We are saved from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins. And instead, we are made right with God by his blood, and we are reconciled with God. There is much, so much to joyfully remember in this. In fact, as people receiving God's word, we are confronted with the gospel that we are sinners who are saved only by God's grace. This is in God's word. God's word says the grace of God chooses us, regenerates our hearts, gives us faith, calls us to repentance, justifies us before God, adopts us as his children, sanctifies us to be more like him, and causes us to persevere until, he, until his return. In light of this saving work of God, we are transformed to be people who obey God. We now joyfully consecrate ourselves to obeying and serving Jesus Christ the rest of our lives on earth. Let's just think about the Lord's Supper, something we observe regularly as a church per the ordinance of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we're doing today. We have a joyful remembrance as we look back at the cross. Jesus' body was broken and Jesus' blood was shed as the price paid for our sins and our redemption. We could not save ourselves. Christ became our sacrifice of atonement with God. We are now justified and reconciled with God. We also have a joyful hope as we look forward to Christ's return at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day, we will be glorified, no longer crippled by sin, and, in, and now in perfect eternal communion with the Lord Jesus. So now we observe the Lord's Supper in joyful consecration. We are committed to obeying the Lord in the big and small ways, assured that in our obedience, we are doing his will with our lives on earth. This brings to mind a conversation I had a little while ago with a brother in Christ from Afghanistan who is here as a refugee. He became a follower of Jesus Christ here in Indonesia. He was sharing with me how he was considering now going back to Afghanistan. It had been so long that he was separated from his, his wife and the rest of his family. He had been unsuccessfully trying to get them here. And now he was thinking that it would be better for him to go back home. He shared that he wanted his loved ones to know about Jesus Christ as well. So he was even willing to go back despite all the dangers and risks. He even told me that he was ready to die because this was so important to him. And I remember thinking to myself while talking to him, where did this willingness to follow Christ into anything come from? Where did this crazy willingness to follow Christ into anything come from? 
I would now say that this kind of joyful consecration comes when Christ's past work on the cross and future promise of eternal glory is a reality in our lives. Church, may we all be people joyfully consecrated to the Lord Jesus Christ today in all the little ways and the big things in our lives. So we've seen that the Lord build, rebuilds us into people receiving God's word, people obeying God, and people joyfully consecrated. So let's close out the sermon with the life application. What are the next steps that we can take to exercise this trust that the Lord built, rebuilds us as his people, the church? First, get God's word to reverberate in you, your church, and all around you. Let's read, meditate, study, and memorize it. And just as we've had as our theme for this past year, let the words of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. You have a word ministry to yourself, to your life group, to your family and friends, and to your neighbors. How will you be intentional to get God's word to echo repeatedly inward into your heart and mind and outward to your community? Second, consecrate yourself to obey and serve Christ in this season that you face. Friends, don't trick yourself into thinking that knowing a lot of Bible is good enough. Don't, don't you know that God wants you to do it as well? In light of what Christ has done on the cross and what promises what he promises to do when he returns, set your resolve to obey, no matter the apparent outcomes or opposition that you face. Be sure that your obedience in little or big ways definitely means that God is accomplishing his will through your life. Praise God for his word. As we said, we'll be observing the Lord's Supper today. So I'll give us a few minutes in light of today's sermon to prepare our hearts. God bless you.